You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. All right, so we are continuing our series, God Is. And what we're looking at is the attributes of God. And so we have looked at many, many attributes, and we are coming very, very soon to a close on this series. I hope that you have learned about God. I hope that you, your faith has been encouraged uh, in this, could we turn up the lights a little bit in here? It's a little dark. Uh, we, hopefully your faith has been encouraged. Hopefully that you have felt more in love with God in this series. But um, what we're, the whole point of this series is this, that the more that you understand who God is, the more that you will understand your purpose in life. You will understand how to go through trials, how to go through great times, bad times, how to you know, manage your money, how to focus on what needs to be focused on, how to set your priorities, right? Like when God is in his place in our life, in our hearts, on the throne of our hearts, everything just starts to fit in place. Everything starts to make sense. Uh, And so we have looked at many of God's attributes. We have seen that he is sovereign, where he is supreme over all. We don't have to worry or stress about, in in the world of politics, right, I talked about how whoever's in office, whoever's not in office, whatever gets passed, whatever doesn't get passed, right, we are from another world, right? We are citizens. We We are strangers on this earth. We are aliens, meaning this is not our final home the way that we see it today. But in other words, we are from another kingdom, a kingdom that reigns over all nations, over all kingdoms. And so no matter what happens, we know our God is sovereign and that he is supreme ruler. And so we can rest no matter what the world looks like in disasters and politics, we can still be faithful in our walks with God because of him being sovereign. We have seen that he is omnipotent, meaning that he has the power to do anything that he wants, and there's nothing that our God can't do. We have seen that he is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere during all time, during all ages, right? I talked about how at the beginning of the world, he's there at the same time that he is here today, and at the same time that he was there at the cross, all at the same time in the same way, and so he knows all, he sees all, he's fully present, he's always with us. And so in the way that should comfort you, but also is that it should also bring a sense of the fear of the Lord, right? It's like the way that you are about to talk to this person, the way that you're about to drive, the way that you're about to send this message, this text message, this direct message, right? Whatever it is, this email, right? Before we do anything, we know our God is with us everywhere at all times. And so it should cause this fear of the Lord within us to think about what we're going to do, but also is that it should bring comfort that he's there in the worst moments of our life that he's there when you get the phone call, that nobody's immune from. He's there always with us. We've seen that he is omniscient, where he knows everything. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows what we need before we ask, before we pray. And he knows all because he is God. So because of this, we talked about how because he knows everything, it should give us freedom to confess our sins before the Lord. That because he knows, he was there when you did it, he knew you were going to do it, he knows what you were doing afterward and before and leading up to that, and yet he's still chasing after us and running after you, and he loves you through his son, Jesus Christ. So because of that, when we sin, we know we have an advocate named Jesus, who we can confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we confess 
boldly and saying, Lord, I messed up. Lord, I fell short. Lord, I come again. But then because we can confess our sins and we know the weight of our sin, we also know the weight of people's sins against us don't compare to the sins that we committed against a holy God. And so because of this, we can forgive anyone because we have been forgiven way more than what has ever been done to us. And so there's no sort of, no matter what it is, right, is that compared to what we did against God, our, what somebody has done against us does not compare. And so because he is omniscient, we know. And then we talked about how he is merciful, right? So because God is merciful, we show mercy. He showed mercy to us, so we now show mercy to others. And we have seen that God is love and that he is, Pastor Josh, when he came, he's a guest past, uh, preacher, he knows, or that he talked about how he is steadfast in his love, right? That when Moses was talking to the Israelites that, and they were, they were complaining and God was going to destroy them, Moses didn't say, hey, look at what the Israelites did. No, no, Moses said, hey, God, remember who you are. Remember how steadfast you are, how merciful you are. And so because of that, because of his love towards us, towards the Israelites, we too can show love. Because we know that how he has loved us, we too can love those around us with the same love. And this love should be our motivation to love others. And 1 John tells us that God is love. And he doesn't just love as in a verb, but God is, it is his being is to love. And so if then if we, if we continue down the line of 1 Corinthians, we see that love is patient. And we know that if we go and we read 1 Corinthians 13, that we see that God can be put where we say love is patient, love is kind. We can say God is patient, God is kind. And so today we're going to talk about how God is patient, how he is a patient God. That even though we don't deserve his patience, yet because he is merciful, because he is loving, because he is kind and gentle, he has patience with us. And so, the first passage we're going to look at today is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible near you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. If you know somebody who doesn't have a Bible and you want to give them a Bible, take that Bible, give it to them. If you want another Bible at home, sure, you can have that Bible as well. But 2 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And so... We are going to look at how God is patient, and, and here in 2 Peter 3, this isn't the only place where we see God's patience, but this is where I want us to start as a foundation, and if you grab the bulletin, you'll see that we're going to be going through a lot of passages of Scripture today. So, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, let's start there. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Meaning, when Noah was on the world, was here on earth, the flood came, and that world was pretty much destroyed. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we see this in, the, in this passage, right? We see Peter talking to, he says, beloved, right? So we see that the audience are Christians. He's writing this letter to Christians. So he says, beloved, don't forget. But before this, right, he talks about how the world was, you know, destroyed by the flood. And then he pa- it's like he pauses and he says, but, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And then he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. So it's like he's saying, hey, this judgment that happened, right? But don't forget that the Lord is not slow in his fulfillment of the promises of a new heavens, a new earth. And then he says, but remember that he is patient, hoping that people come to repentance. And then he jumps back into talking about judgment and how the earth will be destroyed again by fire. And so we see, right, that this world is headed for fire, for destruction, but that time hasn't come, right? We have another day to live for the Lord. We have another, you know, let's say another week to live for the Lord and to glorify him. We don't know, nobody knows. No matter what pastor says, no matter what book comes out, nobody knows when God is coming back. Nobody, right? So don't, if somebody's like, no, for sure, right? If you add this and change this and look at this count, no, 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 like, Nobody knows. Jesus doesn't know. God the Father knows. And that's all that matters is that he knows. But Peter says because he knows, right, is then he says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, right? So, so why hasn't God come? Because the Lord is not slow. The Lord is not wanting that anyone would perish. The Lord is, not want, is, is patient towards us so that we all, right, the beloved, would reach this true repentance in our lives, right? That, and not just us, right, but, but also those who are going to come to know the faith, right? So it's not just that he is patient in withholding destruction so that we, the beloved, would not perish, so that we can come to true repentance, but also that those that may one day come to know the faith through you, right? That when you are talking about your faith, how God has kept you, how God has helped you, has, how God has got you through so many trials and, and tribulations, and yet by somehow, right, you may be able to lead somebody to the Lord and say, hey, and then that person, and the Lord is slow as not as we count slow, but he is patient because of that person, he's wanting them to come into the family as well. And so why is God patient? So that none would perish. You see, the gospel is the power of salvation, right? Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of salvation. So people won't, but catch this, people will not be saved just by you loving them, right? Bible is clear, right? It doesn't say love people and they will be saved, right? No, no, it says believe. It says trust in the Lord, right? Those who endure. And so at some point, right, is that you can't just be nice to people, even though that's good. But at some point, those who are lost need to hear the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because that is the power unto salvation, not our works, not our love, but it is the gospel is what saves. It is Christ 
preached, it is Christ crucified. It is that we were headed for destruction, and yet Christ did it all for us, and now we have it all. And so the Bible is clear that the power unto salvation is the gospel. And then in Romans 10, chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, it says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And in verse 17, in the same chapter, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So they must hear the gospel in order to be saved, and he is patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants, he has, in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, he says this, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, our God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want anyone to perish, right? We've talked about how God is just and God is merciful. So when somebody does perish, when somebody does go to hell, it's because they denied our Father. They denied the gospel freely given to them. And so this is why we preach the gospel is because we know this is the power unto salvation, right? We have friends and we have family who don't know Christ, who don't love Christ, who don't treasure Christ, who call themselves Christians but don't know Christ, right? And so it is our, that is our uh, weight, that is our burden, right? That we should say, hey, I, you should be praying for these people. You should be reaching out to them. You should be inviting them, right? In a loving way, yes. But either way, they need to know the gospel. They need to know the good news. Hey, I know you don't care about God. Hey, I know you don't think you deserve to go to church. Hey, I know you think you've done all the worst things in the world, but know that Christ took that punishment on the cross for you. You don't have to run from God. You don't have to try to clean yourself up before you come to church. Hey, you don't have to do good things before you walk in here. No, no, he says, come as you are, dirty and all. Come to church. Come and see Jesus, right? That's, that's the gospel, that's the good news, and it's because God is patient. He has no desire for the wicked to die and not be saved. He has no desire. He has no pleasure in it whatsoever. And so if we go back to 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 12, right, we read this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, right? So, so what I'm getting at today is this, is not only, right, do we have this, this call, this burden, this this command from the Lord to go and make disciples, but also is that we, by the writers of the New Testament, as we'll see through many of these passages, are calling us to live a holy and godly life in light of God's slowness and of God's patience toward us, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming at any moment, at any time, right? There's, a, there's this old song, it was a, 
uh, it was called, I, I pray we'll be ready, right? And it talks about this idea where it says, hey, like, I pray we'll be ready. I pray that we won't be doing anything we're not supposed to be doing. I pray that we'll be ready, that our hearts will be ready when the Lord comes. And it's, it's a great song, right? one of my favorite songs. But here in verse 11, right, since the end is coming, since the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, since he is patient towards you and towards me, since he wants us all to reach repentance, Peter asked them what sort of people should be displayed or what sort of people should we be displayed in our lives of holiness and godliness, right? This is true repentance, right? A true repentance is your life looking like holiness and godliness. True repentance is where we acknowledge our old way of life, of living, got us nowhere eternally, right? Like your old way of living before Christ, you know, led you to nothing. It, you ended up getting nowhere. Sure, you may have had some temporary earthly accolades, like you, you, uh, you, know, you did this, you built this, you got this contract, but eternally, all those things will be burned up. Eternally, none of those things matter. And so our old way of lives before Jesus led us to absolutely nowhere, just down the same road over and over and over again, right? We ended up still having the same problems. We still run to the same things that don't satisfy us. We still think we can fix our problems on our own, by our own strength, by our, right? How many times have you heard somebody where they're like, hey, no, 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 like I'm, I know I'm dealing with this, but I know if I just have a little more time or I know I'm dealing with this, it eventually it'll just work itself out, right? Give me some time. And it's like, no, 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 like until you bring this to Christ, until you bring this where you realize you need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome this, you're never going to do it on your own. You're never going to be able to do any of this, right? And so then also we still live in a way that shows that we don't want God as our life, not in our life, but as our life, right? So not only, right, so true repentance is where we acknowledge that all these things are pointless, right? Running to the things that don't satisfy us, thinking we can fix our problems on our own, that we still live in a way that shows we don't want God as our life, right? This shows that we don't really, we've never really repented of our old way of life, right? You can't say you follow Christ and still do all of these things. You can't say you follow Christ and still run to everything else but him whenever life comes crashing down, right? You can't say you love Christ and yet your life looks like he has nothing to do with it whatsoever, Right? It'd be you saying, I love my wife, I love my husband, and then you never talk to them, you never spend time with them, you never talk about them, and you don't live in a way as if you are married, but you live in a way as if you were single, right? In the same way as that, as Christians, we are called to lives of holiness and godliness, set apart, different from those around us. So sure, you still do your job, you still love your family, you're a good citizen, you love your neighbor, but behind all of those things, our daily practices and decisions that cause us to be different than those around us, right? As Christians, is that our lifestyle, our way of thinking, our way of doing things should be way different than the world. Our ethics should be way different than the world. The way that we are at work compared to our boss at work, right? He may let you, you know, he may say, hey, don't worry about that. And you know it's wrong. And he's like, but my boss said it. But you, we as a Christian still hold on to these ethics, this godly standard that even if our boss says, hey, no big deal, break that rule, skip this line, you know, cut the corners here, we still do it knowing why. God is with us. God sees us. God is there. God knows our hearts. 
And so we live differently than those around us. Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, he says, But reject irreverent, silly myths. Instead, train yourself for godliness. For physical exercise is of limited value, but godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for the present life and for the one to come. Godliness is what we should be striving for, to be set apart from the world like God is, right? We don't speak the same as the world. We don't use our money the same. We don't spend our time the same. We have the fruit of the Spirit displayed in our lives. We love, we're patient, we have joy, we have peace, we're kind, we're gentle, we have self-control. And this is one of the fruit of the Spirit that many don't talk about is self-control, self-discipline. But why is that, right? Many, many books will say it's, you know, you got to build habits and foundational habits and that will help build other habits. And sure, that's true, right? But as Christians, right, if you want to see whether or not the spirit is living inside of you, right, is look at how much self-control you have as a Christian, Right, because it's, the Bible says if the, if the fruit of the Spirit is in you, if the Spirit is in you, then the fruit of that, the evidence of that is self-control. Your ability to say no to sin, your ability to not, you know, overeat, your ability to not, you know, waste your time, your ability to focus on the things you need to focus, the ability to do everything that you know you want to do, but you don't do, and you wish you could do more of, right, it comes from whether or not you have self-control. And we see that that is a fruit of the Spirit that this is a godly life, that you are able to say no. You are able to, not, to say no to temptation. You are able to say no to sin. You are able to say no to the things that you know are not beneficial for your walk with God whatsoever. You see, we keep in step with the Spirit. This is how we have the fruit of the Spirit, meaning we spend more time with God than we think we need. And this doesn't mean that we don't have lives or jobs or responsibilities. I'm not telling you to go and be a monk in the middle of the desert and, and go and pray for 20 hours of the day and sleep four and fast, you know, half the year. I'm not telling you to do any of that, right? But what I'm telling you is that we have to do what Paul says, right, which is pray without ceasing. That we keep our minds on God throughout the day. That as we're working and, and we're not talking to anybody, that we're communing with the Lord. That we're saying, Lord, man, I thank you to have this job. God, wherever my wife is right now, I ask that you be with her. Wherever my husband is, I ask that you be with him right now. God, whoever my future wife is, I ask that you would let her choose you over this world every single time. God, whoever my future husband is, that he would choose you over this world and that you just talk with the Lord and you just spend time with him wherever you are. And we are to commune with God daily. Every moment our thoughts are to be on him. 1 John 4 tells us this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You see, we forget that not only is God around us, right, God is omnipresent, but also he is in us. He lives there. He abides in us. And this should cause us to live and think differently. Because Paul isn't saying be godly so God will live in you, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying be godly so that God will live in you. No, what does he say? Is that he's saying train yourself for godliness because God is already in you, right? Like, like this past week as I was preparing for the sermon, I started to think, man, like, 
do I really live this way? Do I really live thinking that God is in me? Because if I realize that God, the creator of the universe, holier than anything, the greatest, you know, to ever be worthy of all praise, lives inside of me, this should cause me to want to do things differently. This should cause me to not want to waste time on things that are pointless. This should cause me to talk to anybody I I talk to differently. This should cause me to love Jamie and love my kids and have patience. Why? Because God is in me. He's abiding in me and he's abiding in you. And you see, this should cause you to think so much differently than the world. Because you're not just a, a person who walks in here, checks in, and checks in the, you know, the Christian mark. No, no, no. Like, God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Paul talks about how Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? The Trinity lives inside of you. And so this should cause you to live in a way that is so different than the world. You see, what does a godly life look like? Well, for sure, you can just read the Gospels and see Jesus and imitate him and, and see what God and human flesh looks like. But Paul also gives us some clear instructions in his letter to young pastor Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he tells us this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Right, so what does a godly life look like? Submissive to rules and authorities, rulers and authorities, obedient to the Lord, ready for every good work, and then speak evil of no one. Right, that's hard. Or like, that's a difficult thing because it's like, they'll never hear me talking about them. They'll never know, like, they never hear the under the breath speaking, but yet God knows. Why? Because he knows everything. He sees everything. And God is in you. And so Paul is telling young Titus, hey, speak evil of no one. Those you haven't met in person, right? And as I always like to say, those who are on TV, those who are sitting in our, you know, public offices, those who, your boss who doesn't know what you say in that private email, right? Like, speak evil of no one. Why? Because he's saying, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself, reminding yourself God is in you. And then he also doesn't say here, accept your enemies, Right, he didn't say speak evil of no one, but your enemies go to town on them. Right, like no, 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 no. Paul says of no one, with no sort of other explanation. No one, no nobody, speak evil of no one. And then he continues, says avoid quarreling, which is essentially pointless arguments that do nothing for anyone except prove how right you are. Like how many times do we bring up conversations or we get on Facebook or we get on, you know, if you do Twitter, if you're on Twitter or whatever it may be, it's like how many times do you get in on an argument because you just need to show how foolish this person is? And so you're like, no, if I don't say anything, then nobody's going to say anything and I have to say something. And then you're like, you know, going to town caps lock because you want to show them how angry you are. Like it says avoid quarreling, right? Because if you were praying and communing with the Lord in that moment, if you were praying without ceasing, why would you take away time from the Lord in order to show somebody how foolish they are? And then he says, be gentle. And then he says, show perfect 
courtesy toward all people, right? Because I, I just, I, I've always loved this line when I get to hear it in, in Titus 3. He says, because it just, if you think about it, it just gleams with the love of God, right? He doesn't just say, be courteous to people, but he says, show perfect courtesy, right? So imagine after, I mean, after church day and you go to lunch and your waiter, right, forgets, gets your food wrong, right? And then they get your drink wrong. And then they don't bring you your ticket in time. And then they get your ticket wrong when they finally bring your ticket. And then you're like, there's no way I'm ever going to give this person any sort of tip, right? They don't deserve it, right? But yet, but yet, Paul, sitting there, writing this letter, says, show perfect courtesy toward all people with no sort of, hey, if they get your order right, give them perfect courteous, courtesy. Hey, if they, if they do right to you, show them perfect courtesy. No, no, he just says showing perfect courtesy toward all people, right? Because it's reminding, right? It goes, man, all these, these characteristics of, or attributes of God feed together, right? We do this, right, because God has shown perfect courtesy towards us. God has been gentle towards us. God has been patient towards us. God has been merciful. God has, has you know, been there for us the whole time. And so this is why we do this. And so... But to further explain to young, Tim, young Titus, in case he's sitting there, like some of you, and being like, well, what about this and what about that? So then he reminds Titus in verse 3 of the same chapter. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, we were the ones like this, right? We were opposite of what he's telling him to do. We were slaves to everything in this world, wasting our privileged time that was supposed to be for God. But then he continues in verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal Life, And then if we go back to Titus 2, I told you we're going to be going all over Scripture. But Titus 2, verse 11 through 14, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, we are to be zealous for good works. Zealous meaning it's this like fiery passion with you, right? Some of you, the way you are with fantasy football. Some of you, the way you are with basketball. Some of you, the way you are with hunting. Some of you, the way you are talking about the pop culture, whatever it is, right? Are we, some of you in here have more knowledge about a random subject than most people do in their entire life, right? But yet, that same way they have this fiery passion for that, he's saying, hey, and have us who are, that we should be, you know, God is redeeming us, right, to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works, right? We are to be zealous for good works, zealous to speak evil of no one. 
Zealous to not quarrel about things that don't matter, have any eternal value. Zealous to be patient with those around us, patient with the Lord, patient with anybody that is making us impatient. Zealous to be self-controlled. Zealous to be able to say, you know, to keep in step with the Spirit, right? When's the last time you were zealous for anything godly? When was the last time you were zealous for anything godly? Zealous for the word, zealous for your time with the Lord, zealous for doing good works, zealous for being patient. Like most of the time, it's not that we're zealous for it, it's that we feel guilty because we weren't that. And what I'm saying is that the way that you can become zealous for this is if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, if you're abiding in Christ, you're spending time with the Lord, you're realizing that you have God in you, the hope of glory, and so your time that you spend is differently. Why? Because you're trying to get to know the one you will spend eternity with. Because believe it or not, eternity with God is going to be, is matters way more than the next 30, 40, 50, 20 years you have left here on this earth. You see, it might be time for you to repent and say, God, help me to be zealous for you. And so in, in, in thinking of all this, right, what does this have to do with God being patient? What does all of this have to do with God being patient? If we go to James 5, he says this in James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right, of all the passages, that we read today, do you see a pattern that these writers all have in mind, right? Because God, so because God is patient towards us, we are to be patient until the coming of the Lord. So if we go back, let's see if we can find the pattern. In Titus 2, Paul says, we are to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 3, he says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 2 Peter 3, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You see, this, the pattern here, the pattern that we're dealing with is that we are to be patient waiting on the Lord to come back. That's what we're looking towards. We're not being patient till we reach this milestone in our life. We're not to be patient so that we can reach this accolade in our career. We're not to be patient so we get the life that we want here on this earth. No, no, we are to be patient, faithfully pursuing the Lord until the day of Christ Jesus when he comes back. This is why James talks about it. Titus and then Peter and then the Timothy, right? Paul, all the New Testament writers understand that we are waiting for that day of the Lord. And so does this sound difficult this morning? Does living a godly life sound difficult? Do you think that the Lord would ask us to do something we couldn't do and then punish us for not being able to do it? Or do you think God would give us rules and commandments and, and tell us to live godly lives and to speak evil of no one and to be self-controlled? Do you think he would do this thinking that or knowing that we couldn't do it, supposedly, and then say, oh, but that's sin if you don't do it, right? That would not be a loving God. But instead, right, in 1 John 5, 3, it says this, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
In Matthew 11.30, he says, from my, Jesus is talking, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, if the commandments truthfully aren't difficult, then what is our problem? I believe our problem is this, we're not patient. We don't trust God is going to come through, so we take things in our own hands. We don't trust that patiently spending time with the Lord will actually be worth it. We don't think that it's taking time out of our day in the morning, waking up earlier, going to bed later, and just spending some more time in Scripture is actually going to be worth our while. And we're not patient to see the fruit of that, but instead we forget about it altogether because we're not patient. We don't trust that God is actually coming back because if we did, we would live knowing it could be at any moment. It could be any moment you're going off on a waiter, going off on your boss, going off on your neighbor, going off on somebody on the road, right? Like it could be at any moment that you're about to commit adultery, right? For, for if somebody's in here, right? It could be at any moment you're about to commit, you know, any sort of sin whatsoever, right? And so we live in light of eternity, eternity stamped on our eyes saying, God, I know you can come back at any moment. So God, I'm going to spend my time with you. I'm going to spend my eyes fixed on you. I'm going to spend all of my days for you and your glory because I will be with you for eternity because why you could die tomorrow you see we are not patient with God yet he is so patient with us in our worst moments he doesn't give up on us in our moments of being faithless he remains faithful to you he knows that what we will be he is slow and patient because he doesn't want us to perish he doesn't want us to live without him. He doesn't want us to live lives without his strength, without his love, without his care, without his grace, without his mercy. He wants us to come to true repentance and, and live godly lives. And so some might say, well, God can see us and God can see the future. So, of course, he can see what we're going to be, but we can't see the future. And but so so where's the problem with that, right? Like, so where so what am I supposed to do? He sees the future. I don't. So, of course, he's patient. He knows all. But yet therein lies the solution, because God abides in you. Jesus lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You just trust him with your future. And you don't take life in your own hands. You just pursue the Lord, and you run to Jesus every single day. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. I'm almost done. He says in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 11 is the key there, right? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that ultimately comes through Jesus. He is the key to this all. This is why he says, abide in me, because I promise you, the more time you spend with Jesus, if you catch nothing from today, and if this is the only thing that makes sense, praise be to God if this makes sense. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more the puzzle pieces of life just fit together. I promise you. The more you just sit with him, the more that you pray, the more scripture you read, the more that you meditate on his word, the more that you think on him, that your eyes are on him, the more that you're not going to worry and stress and freak out about life. It's about Jesus, right? It's just, 
eyes on Jesus, on what he did for you, right? You love people because the way he loved you. You have mercy on people because he had mercy on you. You forgive people because you've been forgiven in Jesus. And then we look at verse 11, right? The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of godliness that he's talking about comes who? Through Jesus. We abide in Jesus. We spend time with Jesus. And the more you do that, the more that I have spent time with the Lord, the more that he has blessed me in my life. And it's because, and all the blessings that he's blessed me with are things that most of the time I've never even asked for or thought to pray for, but he knew I needed it. And all I did was spend time with him. All I did was pray to him, think on him. It's because you patiently waiting on him, and then while waiting, you get to know him more. It's patiently waiting whether or not you're in a trial or no trial, because our circumstances don't affect the way that we are called to obey scripture. Right, like scripture doesn't come with like, you know, like a, like a warning where it says, hey, if this happens, then it's okay if you don't obey this. No, no, no. It just says obey, right? And if the Bible says obey, then no matter the circumstance, we obey. If we are in a hurry, be patient. If we want God to come through already, we just must be patient. If we wish we were more mature in our faith, be patient. But this also affects the way we love those around us. We're to be patient when someone isn't as Christ-like as we want them to be, right? Like the person in your family who doesn't love Jesus as much as you want them to, man, you nagging them will never get them to love Jesus more. You riding them will never get them to love Jesus more. You trying to condemn them, you trying to bring judgment upon them, you trying to bring guilt on them will never make them love Jesus more. Why? Because Jesus says to love them. Jesus says, speak evil of no one. Jesus says, don't quarrel. The Bible says the same thing, right? And we're patient with those who haven't caught it yet. Patient with our family members who are hard-headed. Patient with the salvation of our family members. Patient with them because you don't know God's timing, but you must trust that God is not slow. That God is lacking in timing because his timing is always perfect. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't delight or take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so to finish up, this was Paul's mindset, right? This idea of being patient with those around him. I mean, you got to think, if you read the New Testament and you see Paul's letters to the churches, some of them were doing the most crazy stuff, sleeping with their, their mother-in-laws and like doing all, suing one another, all kinds of stuff that should not have been going on. But yet Paul was patient with them. And so how was he patient? What was his mindset? Because you can see the love of Christ that Paul has through every letter that he writes to any church. But in Philippians 3, this is the last passage, it says this, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ 
Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love this passage, right? Because like, it's like, this is, my, this is my goal, that I can talk about Jesus this way, right? Where, and same thing for you, right? That you can say, I count all as lost for the sake of Christ. That, I, that of knowing him is worth more than anything I can get on this earth. For his sake, I will suffer anything and count them as rubbish so that I can gain more of Christ. And then he says, and then being found in him, I now have a righteousness, not of my own, but that comes from Christ. And then that I may know him, I may know his power, his resurrection, and he wants to share in his suffering so that he could have more Christ. And then he says, not that have I obtained this, but Christ has made me his own. And so we strive to live godly lives. We strive to be patient with ourselves we, sh- we strive to be patient with our loved ones. We strive to be patient with everybody around us because God is ever patient with you. Some of you have been off and on in your relationship with God for many years, and yet God continues to run after you, and God continues to tug on your heart, and God continues to put you in churches, and God continues to remind you that he loves you, and God continues to show you that you that he is the only one that will bring you purpose and fulfillment and wholeness in your life. And he is not slow, as some count slow, but he is patient, not wanting any of us to perish. See, it's all for Christ. Nothing matters but Christ. Everything is lost except knowing him. And Jesus made Paul his own. And now we are Jesus as well. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying him and making disciples who make disciples.